Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 469 of the podcast. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership been a great year so far. Thank you to everybody for your encouragement, your support, uh, shout outs on social, sharing this podcast with friends. That's how we get the word out there. And hopefully if you enjoyed this, you share it with a friend. Our guest today is Mark Sayers. And uh, this marks actually part one of a multi-part series on the future. And uh, I hope it's really going to help. And today's episode is brought to you by World Vision and CDF Capital. You can download your free leadership assessment guide today at worldvision.org slash podcast and by CDF Capital, who's hosting an XP Summit in Manchester, New Hampshire, May 24th, 25th, 2022. Just go to xpsummit.org. Well, Mark and I are going to talk about future church trends, how to lead through profoundly disorienting change, and what to expect in 2022. So it's a wide-ranging conversation, and we have been going through so much. And I look to Mark as one of those guides for me. Uh, He's got a Rebuilders podcast he and I talk about. I never miss an episode. Uh, He's got a new book coming out I've had the privilege to read and endorse. And uh, yeah, Mark's just a thought leader, and I've really appreciated his contribution to the wider conversation. And he studies trends like crazy. And so, you know, I follow Mark is the senior leader of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. He's passionate about spiritual renewal and the future of the church. He's the author of a number of books, including Strange Days and Reappearing Church. He lives in Melbourne with his family. What I really like about Mark is there's a few churches, and Mark would be close to that, where I'm like, I think this is what the future church is going to feel like and look like. And uh, if you don't follow him on the Rebuilders podcast, make sure you do that. But I hope you enjoy this conversation. And then we're going to dive into, I'll tell you at the end, uh, where we're going with this mini-series within the podcast. Uh, But we will talk about the metaverse and hybrid church and, uh, well, crypto and uh, uh, the way everything is changing. So hopefully you enjoy it as much as I enjoy thinking about those things and looking into the future. Uh, So World Vision, can you remember a more difficult time to be a leader? World Vision doesn't. And every day, There are more challenges, and as I've said to a lot of my friends, it feels like we're moving into year three of crisis. So how is your leadership? Well, World Vision has partnered with Krish Kandaya to create an interactive tool to help ask yourself the critical questions you need to know to take stock of your leadership. And so they've got a guide. It's absolutely free for you. And if you really want to see how you're doing, do you have it? (laughs) You know, what do you need to do to lead through another year of this? Uh, Go to worldvision.org slash carry podcast and make sure you check it out. And it's brought to you by CDF Capital. So at some point, we'll get out of lockdowns and uncertainty. And uh, learning from each other is critically important. One of the questions that's really emerging is, okay, what are the new best practices? Well, CDF Capital's XP Summit 2022 is happening May 24th and 25th. If you're an executive pastor in that role, you want to be there. The theme is post-pandemic church. We will get there eventually. And as part of your registration, you'll get access to an exclusive digital library created just for you. You can extend your summit experience by joining XP Summit Leadership Cohorts. And it's an exclusive opportunity to grow and connect. You can register for XP Summit today by going to xpsummit.org. That's xpsummit.org. 
Well, I'm grateful for our partners. We trust them, and that's why we bring them to you. Uh, But I'm also really grateful for you as the listener. Wherever you're listening to this, uh, whatever you happen to be doing, I hope it is encouragement to you. And for all of you who leave ratings and reviews, thank you so much. It's a huge encouragement uh, to me and the team. I was just reading Shattered Glass Ceilings. Thank you so much for a review you left a few months ago. You say, I fall into this category of listener that Kerry mentions as being the majority of his audience, a millennial, deconstructing what church means and looks like as a lifelong church kid, and a leader earnestly seeking on how to better myself than I was yesterday. The variety of guests, both men and women, have given me insight and value to add to my formal education and experience in the workplace. It is well-produced, thought-provoking, and the right mixture of vulnerability, navigating change, and tried-and-true leadership practices. Thank you for investing in us. Hey, I am so glad to hear that. A lot of next-gen leaders listening, and then a lot of people in my season of life, too. And so thank you for leaving that. Really appreciate it. And now, my conversation with Mark Sayers. Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, it's fantastic to be here again. Well, I thought it would be fun to uh, start off the better part of a new year, just kind of picking your brain, looking at all the ground that we've covered. Well, really, in almost two years now, which is insane when you think about it. It feels like 20 and it feels like two months. I don't know. Don't know what that is. But um, I have lived off of your Rebuilders podcast for the last few years. Any leader who is not listening to the Rebuilders podcast is missing out. So I'd like to pick up on some of the themes that you have really been um, batting about on that show in some of your other writings. So um, let's start on the macro level. What are some of the meta shifts or the global shifts that you think the world is experiencing right now in the church? Well, I think a a really key um, concept to understand this, this big change that's happening in the world is the shift from a complicated world to a complex world. And in a, in a complicated world, um, things tend to work in a fairly linear fashion. Problems come our way, but we find a workaround and we deal with that problem and we move past it and perhaps innovate a little and then sort of keep going until we hit the next problem. Um, and in many ways, if you think about um, even like some of the solutions that we discovered over the last sort of century and how to deal with complicated problems, um, People dealt with, uh, you know, how to deal with building things. We created like factory lines, whereas this repeated process that even influenced leadership um, and sort of modern management theory, um, where we oversaw this process and made sure it was really effective. Um, But where we're heading now is a world which is much more complex. Um, When it's complex, it means it's non-linear. Things don't happen in 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 this clear step one, step two, step three. There's many things happening at once. A really um, helpful way to, I think, think of this is some of the supply chain issues that the world has been Mm -hmm. dealing with of late. Um, So, for example, I ordered a car during the pandemic in lockdown here. First of all, that was a complex world thing. I'd never thought I would buy a car unseen. Um, So we ordered a a Toyota Camry and then, you know, very quickly discovered after we sort of ordered it um, that there was this whole complex world out there of how a Toyota Camry gets made and gets to my uh, you know, city in Melbourne. But all these factors going into play from the fact that there is chip, uh, the, the chips, the processes that go in the cars, there's a supply issue with that. That's linked to stuff that's happening around the world involved with the environment. There's a magnesium shortage linked to energy things happening in, in, in China. And this, there's been various things with port production in, in, in southern China around coronavirus outbreaks. 
So all of a sudden, this really simple thing, I had a complicated world issue in my head when I bought cars before, which was how do I go to the dealership, get a good deal and get home? Um, when all of a sudden, I just went into another universe where I'm dealing with stuff that I'd never thought I was going to deal with in buying a car. So we're living in this networked, complex world. And I think that's the big ship. So, you know, we think about coronavirus, you know, and its effect over the last couple of years, but we're seeing how that interlinks with so many other things that are happening in the world. So it's a big shift for us to get our heads around, but the world is becoming more complex. I think that's the big, big shift that's happening that we're living and leading through. I've heard you also describe that as maybe a world that's increasingly destabilized. I mean, I think there's still remnants of it now where people are saying, well, we're coming out of the pandemic, right? So we'll have a normalized world. Do you think that that is a simplistic reduction of what's happening? Do you see more instability ahead? And if so, why, how, and where? Yeah. So I think that one of the, one of the I guess, things we need to get ahead around is that a more complex world is, is derives from a more connected world. Um, you know, if you think about um, if you invited 10 people over to your house, just say you invited 10 people that you know fairly well, maybe a couple you don't know as well, but you sort of know them acquaintances, and you have a dinner party, um, there might be some complicated things arise. There might be a difficult subject of conversation. Um, you know, someone might spill something on themselves. Again, complicated world issues. But if you invited 5,000 people randomly picked um, from around the world to your house for, for dinner, that is a much more complex reality. And so that's the world we're living in. Um, you know, before the pandemic, I was I was always wondering, you know, I'd read a number of things and articles which talked about the fact that, you know, at some stage we were due for a global pandemic. And I remember reading an article and not long after that being in Dubai airport, you know, having to kill two hours, you're sort of completely exhausted out of your brain, having flown, you know, 18 hours from Melbourne mm. there. And I remember just sitting on a chair, just looking around the absolute just um, diversity of places that people had come to that airport. And I remember thinking, man, we're so connected in this world. If there was a virus in a place like this, it's just going to be across the planet in 24 hours. Um, so the more connected we are, it brings benefits. You know, we get to enjoy, um, in a city like Melbourne, I get to enjoy food from all over the world, um, meet interesting people um, who've come here from all over the world. I can talk to you on, on, um, you know, on another continent um, in, this, in this electronic way. But what that also means is that there's complications uh, uh, and complexity comes to us. because So we're, we're closer to everything in the world, including all of the world's problems. And also sometimes we're isolated from even people who we're close to in our street. Um, so the more we're connected, the more issues that are going to come our way. So I think that's really the, that, that driver then of the big thing I see is disruption going forward. So disruption is the new environment in which we're going to live. Yeah. So normal as a concept, would you, would you pronounce, you know, here we are at the beginning of another new year, whenever people are accessing this, would you say normal as we knew it is dead or like just give it six more months or what, what's your take on that? So I think I've been, I've been more and more, yeah, cause definitely, you know, when the pandemic first kicked off, people talked about the return to normal, the new normal. Mm. Um, and I think now I'm starting to see it more as we're actually coming out of what we thought was normal was actually abnormal. Um, and there was this this period of um, you know you can even say like say 2005 to to you know 2019 or 2016 where there was really an, a, a sort of like belief in the world that the world was going to move to a more smooth world. Um, I remember I'd have these I'd have these moments you know sort of 2017 2018 where perhaps I'd be on the other side of the world in London and I could use my Uber app and 
Um, I could go into a coffee shop and find like Australians running a coffee shop in London or Los Angeles. You could make a coffee like, you know, get in Melbourne. Um, you could walk into a H&M store and get the shirt that you're looking at a few weeks earlier in another continent. And so it was this very smooth world that you could move around. And it seemed like things were just economically stable. There's a bit of instability in the world, but nothing that affected you personally. But really where we are now is I think we've returned to more what the world's always been like. Periods of geopolitical um, tension, pandemics, economic upheavals. This is normal. Um, I think we bought a myth that we could have this world which is really stable and we could live our best lives and go about our projects and lead without disruption. So I actually think we're more returned to normality. Disruption is normal. Yeah, you know, and as much as I don't want to hear that, I suppose you are right. I mean, I did study history for a few years in university. And if you look at it, it is plagues, war, factions. I mean, the biblical narrative. It's it's like every other book, something's blowing up. Some civilization is being overthrown. Uh, some people are being exiled. Someone's in jail. Um, like, it is not the life that we grew up in. Even my parents, who were born in the 1940s, were born into the midst of a world war. And then, you know... Um, baby boomers come on after Gen X and millennials grow up in this little bubble where you're going to do better than your parents. You're probably going to have more money than your parents. You're going to have a stable job. There's a career trajectory. You can fly pretty much anywhere you want. Like when my dad came over from Holland in the fifties, late fifties, he thought that's it. I can never afford a plane ticket back. Well, air travel was so expensive and it wasn't as much anymore and now we live in this, like you say, I got a new car too, theoretically. I don't even know whether I'll have it by the time this airs. It's like, I've never had to wait six months, four to six months for a car. And they were literally trying to intercept one at the manufacturing line to get one for me. And I'm like, that's weird. Normally they're like, yeah, we can have it here Tuesday. When do you want it? Right. But you think this destabilized world is more normal. And that probably is a normative view of history. What, what are the destabilizing forces? What are what are the things that are making? Because I think every leader loves predictability. Leadership is hard enough, but what are the factors that are making this a destabilized era? Era. So, so one of the things that is is happening now is that in a complex system, you got to think of it as a network or a system where everything's connected. Mm. So, one crisis doesn't stand alone. A crisis can start to fall into another crisis. So, for example, you know, look at some of the supply chain issues which we're chatting about here. That is linked to so many different factors. So, for example, I just mentioned magnesium that um, affects production. So, magnesium production as a recording is, is gone down. Why is that? Well, that's actually because a number of the coal power plants in China, uh, where a lot of the smelting happens of, of magnesium, have actually gone offline. Why? Because China is doing a number of things. One, they're in a They've stopped buying Australian coal because of some geopolitical things where Australia pushed back on um, um, some political things with China. So that's, you know, one factor. Uh, also, China's committed to quite a, an ambitious global um, uh, uh, carbon emission goal. So that means they're moving from coal into renewables. That's another factor. There's been COVID outbreaks in, in China as well, which is affecting. So all these are different crises. And what happens is crises in a complex world begin to then cascade is the term that we hear from complexity science where they begin to cascade so i look forward i think that you know what we're looking at is we're looking at geopolitical issues uh, geopolitical change we're looking at cultural change uh we're looking at climate change 
We're looking at moving towards a new economic model. We're looking to increasing um, technological disruption. Um, the world is moving away from a centralized American global order to now a more decentralized, multipolar world. Um, I just saw one sort of prediction the other day where it said the world will now move around instead of like America at the center, three centers, like an American sort of led world, an EU led world and a Chinese led world. Um, this talk of the internet breaking up into regions. So even one of the big things that people are now talking about is the digital pandemic, that the internet's going to become a less smooth, unpredictable place um, to expect that with cyber attacks, um, the internet may go offline in your country for a period is an expectation of the future. Um, and so, you know, all of these factors, uh, you know, globalization, deglobalization, internet, um, and also even pandemics, the more we push into the environment, the more we can expect pandemics to happen in that sort of human nature over uh, overlap. Uh, so all of these factors, you know, put us in. And one way I think about it is, which may be helpful for people, is we're coming to the end of an era. I think we're coming to the end of that smooth period. We're coming to the end of the American century. What we're about to head into, we don't know what it is, but we're in the yeah. waiting room between eras, you know, and I call this the gray zone. It's like this and it's an overlap, so it's confusing because you see elements of the previous period are still here, and then the next era is forming, but they're like overlapping. It's like Rome didn't end, you know, on a Wednesday, and the Dark Ages began on a Thursday. There's always overlap, and I think we're living in this very confusing overlap grey zone in between time. It can, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying. I mean, I just listened to a podcast a few months ago about you know, the possible collapse of the internet. Uh, you've seen little elements of it, but I mean, this isn't just, oh, I can't Google anything or I can't get Instagram. This is like, no, the power grid has failed mm. or your self-driving car doesn't drive itself or your mm. appliances don't talk to each other anymore and your fridge is malfunctioning, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is, this is pretty deep or, or, you know, there's just no water in your city for a season. You're talking about that kind of disruption, right? Yeah. And, and I think like, I think what, one thing I've noticed when I talk about this, we sort of have these two settings in our heads. One is things going really well. And as you said, you know, I can jump on an international flight and my, my Uber app is working in that city I just traveled to. Or we have zombie apocalypse. Right. <laughs> like we have two right. settings where, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, so I'm not talking about this. And people are like, okay, do I need to start preparing? And, you know, like, is, right. is where's, society my bunker? Gonna where's my bunker? Yeah, exactly. And do I have rice <laughs> exactly. for two years? All that yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. On a roof with a crossbow fighting off zombies. Um, <laughs> and it's like, you know, I'm, so I'm not saying, but I think what we are moving away from is a predictable, secure, stable world where we don't have to think about what's happening outside of us or even outside of our church and we can just get on with our thing. Um, I'm more talking about more disruption um, as we change and something might emerge. I don't know. It could be emerging five years. It could end in 50, you know, emerging 50 years. Um, but I think, yeah, just that predictability, uh, instability and things coming down the road that you never expected to come down the road. Yeah. So, you know, we're 15 minutes into this conversation. We're already all depressed now going, gosh, and we thought 2020 and 2021 were hard enough, Mark. Uh, and again, I'm not disagreeing with you. How do you lead in that kind of unstable, and this is true of church, businesses. I mean, we all have to lead in that environment. How do you do that? How do you figure out even what step to take? One of the dominant conversations I've had over the last year has been with leaders who are like, how do I lead when I can't see ahead? What, what do you do about that? 
Well, again, too, we, when to return to scripture, there's this really fascinating, I, I was reading this in my devotions yesterday. This, I'm reading through First and Second Samuel. And, you know, part of the great drama of First Samuel is, is David is being pursued by Saul. David has been anointed for leadership, but he doesn't have the throne or he doesn't have the crown. And that's the, that's the drama of that story. And, you know, you know, he's been sort of anointed. You're waiting for him to become king. Then we have that moment where Saul uh, dies. And in your head, because we've been shaped by Hollywood, we've been shaped by simple word concepts. Oh, so he's just going to be king and he's going to march into Jerusalem. And everyone's going to be, you know, cheering him and, and there's going to be this great king. And maybe Bathsheba happens and that's his one little thing. And then we move on. But actually, there's this in-between period where there's still remnants of Saul's forces. His sons are still fighting. There's like this interesting battle still going on. Um, the people actually like supporting David, but he's actually almost depressed and feels weak. And I read that and I thought, oh, this is so much like actual leadership that I experience. <laughs> and I realized that we have this fantasy world of leadership. And I began to think about this. Like, I think what, what I felt like when the pandemic hit, there were lots of people like, okay, so here's this, here's this interruption. We're on a, the pause button has been pressed. When does the pause button get released? And I can just go about leading. Okay, well, what's leading? Preaching, running programs, and doing that without being interrupted or doing whatever, running that conference. And I began to realize, I thought, hang on, maybe that's management, not leadership. And then you see David. David's not like, how do I get into Jerusalem and run the programs to ensure that everyone's following the Torah and, you know, we're a holy nation? Like, actually, as I experience leadership, and I think as many people experience leadership, it is complicated. You know, it's not that you're running a program. I mean, how many young pastors or young leaders come into the, they've got these grand visions of what the theological vision of their church should look like or how they would do programs differently. They go to seminary. They they perhaps apprentice somewhere. They finally get the, the reins to be the senior leader. And then they spend the next 10 years dealing with other stuff, you know, perhaps tensions in their church, stuff happening in their community. And they never get to the stuff that they thought this was always going to be about. And so I have this sense that actually we're being returned to reality. If we were in an abnormal period that we thought was normal, what if we're actually turned to reality? And what reality is, is it, it reality kicks your butt? Reality is not controllable. <laughs> like reality shows up our weakness. And like like conflict is normal. Um, contentious is normal. Israel was divided when David took over, even though Saul, Saul had gone. And he had to lead through that. So my sense is that there's this invitation at this moment to return to a leadership where we can't, when I can't predict, I'm not in power as the, in the way that I thought I was. So that means I have to be far more dependent. And what we see David doing there is David this incredible devotional life, this incredible heart after God that we see that was developed in the wilderness in this really difficult place in David begins to then be his sort of lodestar of how he leads. So I feel like there's this element of us leading from a different place. And I think there's a connect, a move. Look, we need management. There's always management elements. I'm not downplaying that or saying we shouldn't run programs. But I think there's an invitation here to return to a more sort of raw dependent leadership. I think that's actually the fount of creativity and innovation. Like mm-hmm. advances happen in the church when we're not just doing the same thing because it's always worked. Like when the last thing stops working, yeah, that's horrible and hard and pushes us. But that's also the moment where the next thing that God's going to do actually begins to be better. I'm glad you went to control. You glanced off it, but I want to drill down on that. Because some of this, uh, as I've been processing it, Mark, I'm trying to think, how much of this is just we had either the illusion of control or the addiction to control. And I think control and predictability 
are fairly closely linked, at least in my mind. In other words, if I can anticipate what's going to happen, then if I do this, there's a cause and effect, right? If we put our foot on this pedal, the car, the church, the organization will accelerate. If I put it on this pedal, we'll slow down a little bit over here. And that seems to have got out the window. You step on the gas and all of a sudden you're going backwards. It's like, wait a minute, that's not supposed to happen. How, how much of this really gets into like control or predictability? Can you talk about that and maybe even talk to our souls about that? Mm. Yes, I think on the theoretical level first, yes, in, in, a, in a complex system, it's unpredictable and you can't control it because an input can react in a really different way than you expect because it can cascade and do different things. So that's the sort of scientific thing. So that's where we're at. Um, that Then my next question, exactly as you said, what does that mean for us as leaders? Well, all of a sudden when things are out of control and you can't predict, how do you start to feel? Your worth gets attacked. Like when you're in control, mm-hmm. predictable, like people look to you because you know which way things are going. You're the one who seems to anticipate when you're controlling this fantastic, I don't know, big um, you know, Bible study network or whatever. Um, wow, this person has this leadership gravitas. They're really in control. They know everything that's happening. Um, when, when that's not happening, we, we begin to like, well, where, where does my sense of security, where does my sense of self, where does my sense of feeling like the, the foundation of my leadership emerge from? And, you know, I thought a lot about this. Like, you know, here in Melbourne, our experience is we've been in a very long lockdown, you know, one of the longest in the world. And, you know, I began to realize that I just was not in control. And I, I never realized how, like, I would probably have criticized people for that in 2018 if you'd asked me, oh, it's leaders too much in control. I really had to lead it, you know. Um, uh, and so I feel like there's this moment where it's a turning to God who is ultimately in control. This is actually this moment of, all leaders, you know, personal renewal leads to corporate change. My friend Cherry Walling says that the life of a leader is always about the overflow of what God is doing in them. And I think people less want to see, uh, you know, leaders in control because a leader in control is great until they're not. And and I think what people are looking for at this moment in, in a world too, where we're looking at politicians, we're looking at industry leaders, we're looking at sports administrators, half these people are looking at them going, I don't think you guys know exactly what's going on. Um that what actually people are looking for, what, who is someone who has an authentic intimacy with Jesus? And, and we're called to be disciples. Disciples are followers of Jesus. I think this moment, our leadership flows from someone who has intimacy with Jesus, who is following well. Maybe we're one step ahead of our people, but that's more attractive than someone who's trying to command the environment and be in control of it um, because I think that world's gone. So I think some of the disruption that people have been feeling, some of the disorientation, destabilization, Particularly younger leaders, I think we've been culturally formed or, you know, younger leaders, perhaps millennial leaders have been culturally formed. If it feels bad, something's wrong. Mm. Now, hang on. If it feels uncomfortable and something's wrong, yeah, that's not fun, but also that's an invitation to turn to God in a much deeper way. And again, to return to David, when David fights uh, Goliath, He's able to see that battlefield very differently because he has a very different experience and has been doing it tough in the wilderness places. That that whole army with all their protocols and their military strategy did not see the way out of that. He saw the way out of it because God had actually formed him in the wilderness. And, you know, I think we're at this moment where he reaches into that little stream and picks up those rocks. And people have been looking going, you're a lunatic. Saul tries to put his armor on him, which is the programs of the last season. And he has this thing where he's, he's like, no, no, the battles of the Lord's. He goes forward. And and the one thing I realized too is 
when, when disruption ends, and there can be little moments before the next disruption, we then find David later on, the guy who fought, fought Goliath, and he goes when he's on the run and, and he goes to the tabernacle and he's looking for a sword and they're like, yeah, Goliath's sword is in the tabernacle. Do you want it? And he's like, yes, give it to me. So even this lesson, you're not going to learn this once. It's this continual thing where I think this period of disruption, you'll master something, some cultural issue may happen in your country. Maybe you finally get to deal with it and you're like, great, now I can sort of move on. And then the next thing will come, an environmental change, you know, a technological change. So God is pushing us as a church deeper and deeper, I think, into dependency on him. And I think that's where the next thing is going to come from. Yeah, the hits just keep on coming, you know, as mm. they joke. How, how did you get through the last two years? In, because I think you're right. Most mm. of the people listening to this podcast are Americans, and we have a global audience as well, but, but 70 80% live in America. So it was a three-month thing where they kind of shut down, they reopened. For the most part, there are variants. And, and then they're like, oh, yeah, people didn't come back the way we thought, right? But there is that illusion of control because you're free mm. to reassemble. You're free to take mm. a mask off. You're free to mm. whatever. And you didn't have that. You've been mm. under strict lockdown for the better part of a year and a half, two years. So mm. what was that journey like for you? How did you experience that as a leader? Mm. Yeah, I think, I think it, what, what, a number of things. I think at first, like when the pandemic hits, what I noticed was, you know, I was talking to people across the world and particularly in that first sort of six weeks, couple of months, there was this very unifying experience. And then what happened for us here is Australia adopted a COVID zero approach for the first part of it, which was basically get a few cases locked down, we shut our borders. And so the strange thing was that that is how we did that was different to most of the rest of the world. So all of a sudden that conversation I'm having with other people where I can sort of have this sense of solidarity and comrade camaraderie with others wasn't there so it started to feel much more um, individual what we we're experiencing then what happened was the rest of australia got rid of it but my my city went on this long lockdown our city was shut off so literally got the whole of australia which has no covid living their best lives you know you look at your mates on instagram they're at the beach and we're just here in melbourne it's colder here it's like winter like what is going on and but you know, so, so it was this really interesting time where what I realized was that people in Melbourne, like many contemporary cities, you're living your life. But we actually went, I think, into this really communal experience. And I think for a lot of the pandemic, there has been some cultural, you know, like clashy type stuff. But actually, the Pew research said that Australians actually become more unified uh, at the end of the pan at this period of the pandemic where other countries have become more polarized. So I began to realize, like, God's got me this, this international voice to speak into stuff like I'm doing here, but I had to really focus on my, where I was, that I was in Melbourne. This was my city. What is, what is God doing here? What's happening in my neighborhood? I all of a sudden went from someone who was flying around the world to literally, we could not go. I could not go with the orders for a lot of the last uh, 18 months, more than three miles. Uh, three days ago, I went to downtown, which is not that far, 15-minute drive. Mm. Um, that's the first time I'd been in a year. Like, so I've gone from someone's flying around the world to literally you are in place, walk in the same streets. And I began to say, okay, there's a point where instead of like, you know, like going, like feeling sorry for myself, I think it was part of that for the first pandemic, like with all of us. But I was like, what yeah. are you doing, God? What is, what is the opportunity in this that I would never have again? And, and I used to, so we had a curfew. So like, First it was 8 and then it was 9 p.m. I would walk there that was silent at night. And I just would always, I would, every single night, I would walk to the front. I couldn't walk past the front of my house, like 
technically legally. I'm gonna. I could step over. Police are not gonna <laughs> not patrolling the streets. I would put. There's I would more, put my foot just right over the yes. line, just to go. Okay, yes. I've got a little bit of autonomy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember, like, but I would say to myself every night, "This will never happen again." What is God saying to you in this moment? And for us as a church, there was a period we could come back for a period in the middle. And, you know, we, we, I think probably because here things are mandated, so everyone does it, so it's less like freestyling. Um, and I remember, like, when we came back from the middle, there was something different in my congregation. Did people leave? Yep. Um, uh, did people come? Yes. But there was something deeper where I realised that this, this thing that I fought in Melbourne for years around, there's so many fantastic things in Melbourne. We were the world's livable city for ages, that actually God was taking us deeper. He was making us more resilient. And so I had to go with that rather than what I thought was going to happen. Um, so it's been this really, I think, this quite incredible experience we've had as a city. We haven't had the deaths of other cities. You know, we've saved a lot of lives. It's been almost this thing of like us, by us all doing this together has actually been this light, you know, thing we've, we feel bound together. You talk to people in the street still, you know, like it's been going for 18 months or two years. Um, so for me, it was like a reconnection where I was, a deepening of our, of our congregation, but I think a deepening of, of me that that I have to lead out of dependency. Um, I've got no other choice going forward. One of the other themes, and I'm I'm taking notes because you know I, I read through Jeremiah recently again, and you know that was not a good life. Like let's just be honest, that was not your best life. But it was he had a pretty miserable existence when you really look at it, and was imprisoned a lot and then thrown into the well and then in exile and, you know, the whole deal. And I think often we think, oh, if I've got favor in my life, it's going to be a lot of freedom, a lot of joy, money in the bank, sunshine every day. And that's that's just not the narrative of most of human history or, or certainly of scripture. Um, you do talk about freedom a lot on Rebuilders, and I want to go there. Uh, I remember, and I might be paraphrasing here, but you talked about, you know, one of the responses to this change we're seeing in the in the climate, climate change is, oh, freedom, right? We just want freedom. It's this like libertarian push against any kind of regulation. I get to do what I want. Do you want to talk about the birth of that or the resurgence, not a new narrative, but the resurgence of sort of the libertarian agenda and the freedom from all restrictions, because I'm sure that there are people listening to this, listening to you describe that. And they'd be like, I'd be making a beeline out of that city, out of that country and going to a place where I'm free. What, what talk about freedom. What, mm -hmm. what is, what is good about it and what is idolatrous about it or yeah. wrong? Well, I think what, what was really interesting, I talked a lot about the West and I yeah. you know, go to Europe, go to North America, whatever, talk about you know, Australians and the West. I realized how the West is really different. And, um, you know, I think how Australia responded to this really differently is that Australian, Australia is individualistic um, and, you know, Australians love freedom. But there's this moment that actually in crisis, we're really bound together, bind together, and we're willing to sacrifice for the whole. And so Melbourne was like, the language we used in Melbourne is, we're going to go through this to protect the rest of Australia. And it was just fascinating. I never expected to see that happen. Um, and, you know, but that raised all these things in, in, in people outside. You're getting some messages and this, this message of freedom. And I think one of the things that happened, the way I help people frame this is modernity, the Enlightenment, was all about this period of human history where, particularly in the West, we felt that we had conquered nature. And because we conquered nature, and we then could then work on the problems of human nature. 
So, you know, if you think about Martin Luther, Martin Luther had his sort of moments where he's walking through a forest and there's a storm. He's terrified by nature. He does not feel free at that moment. He's more worried about getting hit by a falling tree um, or struck by lightning. Um, you know, if you think of, um, uh, you know, uh, Wesley on the Atlantic, you know, in the midst of this storm, you know, and he's looking at his moravians like, how do you have this peace? He's terrified by nature. Um, so most of human history, we were feeling like we were really small insignificant and nature could crush us at any time the modern world was creating these incredible environments where we could go to a big city walk around the mall whatever you even think of cruise ships um these huge artificial environments where we don't have to worry about nature everything's provided for us and we assume things we assume that our health is going to be fine we assume we're not going to be hit by lightning we're assumed that a pandemic's not going to get us and so questions of like freedom then is well what can the individual do and there's two ways to look at freedom. There's freedom from things and freedom to do things. So a lot of the questions of human freedom were really like, how do I have freedom from oppression? How do I have freedom from uh, discrimination? You know, these are freedoms from. But then there's a point where you get to in a, in a human society where people start to ask questions of like, how do you know, I want to have freedom to do this and, and to self-create. So a lot of the contemporary world that we've been living out of is how do I have these increasing freedoms, which is out of a story that the modern world tells us that you are basically are an individual who can self-create. You are going to create your own identity. The world's your oyster. You can go where you want, do what you want, uh, whenever you want. And that's actually how uh, happiness is discovered. But what I realize that we're seeing now is through the pandemic, um, I think increasingly through the challenges of the environment, through all this disruption that we're talking about, is the return of nature. And it was just fascinating that I found in the pandemic. What, there were multiple books written that a pandemic was coming. They've been throughout human history. There was articles. There was the front cover of the Time magazine, I think like 2014, the next coming global pandemic. You know, you saw TED Talks where people were predicting this. Like this was so obviously going to happen. It happened in, you know, stories of my grandfather lived through the great Spanish flu in 1918 and was, you know, really ill and in, in, in this mass ward. Uh, those cultural stories are with us. Why did so many people struggle to believe that this was actually happening? And I actually think that's more about ideology than reality because we could not handle the idea that something from outside, something from nature could restrict our freedom. Mm -hmm. And so I actually see that, again, this is us returning to normal. Yes, nature is there. We live in a, in a natural world. There are going to be challenges and that put, impinges on our freedom. So I think what's actually happening is we're, we're trying to deal with these things from these political issues of human nature the world we're heading into, the 21st century, is the return of nature. Yep, other problems of human nature still there, absolutely. But I think a lot of what 2020 was about was actually we thought we'd conquered nature. We also thought we conquered human nature. So 2020 was the return of nature. You look at all of the different um, protests, you know, that started in the US but went around the world around racism and then actually went into other things. Um, that was about the return of we, we can't conquer nature and we can't conquer human nature that the these ongoing problems of discrimination are still there. So there's this element where the story that the world has told us that we can conquer everything and you can just be free. You don't have to worry about these problems. You can just, you know, do your free thing. But think about how that, that affected church. Come to our mm. church. We'll put on these things for you. You pick what you want. Here's the men's breakfast. Kids can go to this. Great parking. You know, all these things. That, that And again, too, I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things, but when they're the main thing, um, and I think there's this huge evangelistic opportunity and a huge discipleship opportunity as we begin to realize we're not as free as we thought we were. And I think the line I gave on that on podcast you're referring to was like a virus or 
a storm does not care about your freedom. They're not thinking about you <laughs> and your rights. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so that, that's the world we're heading into. Do you think people got that message? No, not yet. Um, and, yeah, and what I really about human history is, um, you know, people um, don't learn these lessons. Some do. Mm-hmm. There's always a remnant who have an opening. The rest keep trundling forward. Ideology is really, really powerful. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that it's increasingly short-circuiting. Um, and I think that libertarian idea of like, you know, uh, how do we sort of like push back on anything that may restrain us is still quite powerful, particularly in the US. And again, that's different in different countries. I think one thing I learned is Australia is not libertarian. Australia is Western, but the libertarian thing never took off here in the same way, um, particularly because we sort of look to government less to escape from. In Australia, government was something which actually provided us with a sense of security because we're in this harsh environment. Um, so, you know, we see, see these things differently, um, but it's still a powerful, one of the big stories in the world um, that are out there. Yeah, you know, because part of me thinks, I don't know that I've gotten the message because I saw the headlines too about a future pandemic and the thought bubble in the back of my mind is, yeah, but that's not really going to happen. And when you think about, you know, I was, I was my first trip to the U.S. last fall. Uh, I, I was like, yeah, if somebody had told me you're not going to be able to fly anywhere. Uh, your church is going to be shut down for a year. Your, uh, you know, your whole way of life is going to change fundamentally. I'm like, there's no way that's happening. And yet, somehow we got through that. And I was flying back from Logan Airport in Boston. And, you know, it was still bizarre to me. I know a lot of Americans have been flying for a year already. But, you know, for me, it was the first one. And I sort of at the gate saw people with masks and, you know, I had to provide my negative COVID test to prove that I didn't have COVID before I got on the plane, all that stuff. And I thought if somebody had showed me that two years ago, I would have said, what kind of weird movie is this? And what am I doing in it? But then there was that moment and listen, millions of people died. I'm not minimizing it, but it's like, but you survived, like you made it. Are we learning anything about the resilience of humanity in this season? Or do you think that's premature and we're just, you know, got our fingers in our ears going, la, 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 it's not going to happen to me. I'm moving on with my life. Like, are we learning anything about resilience or is that premature? It's really interesting. I think one thing that I've learned during this pandemic is I look at my church and I look at my city and people reacted in really different ways. I think I used to think about like the mass out there, like the public, what does Joe mm. Public think, and Joe Public is millions <laughs> of people who all think the same thing, like some giant entity. Yeah. Um, you know, there are people yeah. in my church who who struggled and and perhaps haven't learned, and and you know, I'm sure that you know, as Melbourne emerges, there's people just going to go back to running around like headless chickens, doing exactly what they didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. There are other people who profoundly changed. You know, I think I think um, there's something that being in such a lock, long lockdown has has changed us, and I think that. I think what we missed was that humans grow through really difficult periods. We were trying to create a world where we had no difficult periods. And, you know, if you think about suffering, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about God speaks us often loudest in our sufferings. I wish it was another way. I wish God spoke to us loudest in our, in our most pleasurable moments. Um, I think there's, there's a remnant who have learned something. There's a remnant in the church who have learned something. And then there's like a, a group in the culture who are open in new ways. Um, 
you know, just what we're hearing here in Melbourne, you know, like people at church are having conversations with people at the park because, again, we can't walk anywhere. People are talking to people and literally people are coming up and saying, I'm starting to rethink my life. Now, is that gotten to a God thing sometimes? <laughs> Not always. But I think there's this big rework that's going to work through for about 10 years here. We're in this transitional moment. I think, um, you know, you look at travel. Um, yes, it's coming back, but we're about to move into all the different energy challenges. Um and, you know, like uh, there's already, you know, like what, what will the future of energy mean for travel? You know, so it might be uh, that a number of these things where we just thought we could assume these things um, with the different, I think, energy uh, challenges that we've got coming. Um, so we may not get it the first time, but we may get it on the third time, the third disruption. Um, we may start to, to reconnect. Yeah. How much of this has to do with humility? <laughs> a huge amount. A huge amount. Um, <laughs> I've always thought, and I don't know about you, like when I've met believers from the two-thirds world who live in very different circumstances to me, um, there's a different, you know, and look, I, I had the experience of talking to people in different places in the world when, when you know, throughout the last two years. And I did notice that in West, in a lot of Western countries, people are like, how is this happening? Do I even believe this is happening? And a lot of my conversations with people in places like Africa or India or whatever, there was this acceptance, this happens. There was a humility that you're not in control. And I actually think one of the great gifts that we could take from this is humility, that, that, you know, God humbles us. And I think these situations are humbling us. And I feel like what the world needs now is not a triumphant church in its own triumphalness. Um, yes, Christ is triumphant. Um, but I think that the world is looking for a humble church at this point in time. And I think that's going to be an increasing cut through, particularly in Western culture. Before we leave freedom and autonomy and pride, uh, in one of the Rebuilders episodes, and again, I would just recommend the whole series, the whole podcast to, to listeners who haven't discovered it yet. You talk about the frontier myth and how it impacted the church. And this would be true of business leaders too. Can you unpack that for us, Mark? Mm -hmm. So again, returning to nature. So it was really interesting, particularly in the US as America began to industrialize and in a sense, nature got conquered, particularly on the East Coast. Um it was really interesting. People began to look at nature differently. So you had this idea of the myth. There was this idea of people wanted freedom, so they kept going westward. And so if you didn't like how things were here, you kept going westward and you kept heading towards that frontier. Um, and it began to be romanticized. The reality was very different. And the reality was that it was not always free. It was actually really hard and people died. And there was people who lived there before and there was a lot of human cost and there was elements of conquest and colonialization in the midst of all of that. But it grew up in this, this myth of the frontier that, that you can just head westward. And by heading westward and leaving behind the trappings that held you back, you would discover this sort of raw essence of what it was, it was to be a leader, to be an individual, to be that rugged individual. You see this in movies, you see this in novels, cowboy movies and so on. And so the idea of always pushing the frontier. Um, it's interesting, once the westward um, sort of frontier got, you know, the, hit the Pacific Ocean, there's all these other frontiers. Uh, you know, John F. Kennedy talked about um, the new frontier and you know, some of the people around here, this new frontier, go hit the West, but this new frontier, of, you know, government and, and how these sort of really bright minds are going to come and think. It's space. Uh, Captain uh, Kirk at the beginning of Star Trek talked about space, the final frontier, as this new frontier. When the internet first kicked off, we talked about the electronic frontier. So there's this element of always pushing forward, but there's this idea that by leaving behind things, if you hit a problem, just keep heading westward. And that by sort of connecting in nature that you're going to discover this essence of this raw leader. And I think what this did is it created this mythology of leadership. 
that the leader is this person who leaves behind all the stuff which holds them back, the difficulty. Um, and almost what you get is you almost got this model of leadership where you've got the people in the organization. And part of this was actually an insecurity about industrialization, the fact that there were big organizations and to lead them was really hard. And in the 1950s, there's all these books about like the, the man in the gray flannel suit and people felt like there was something disappearing in, in leadership and just getting sucked into the institution industrialization. So you get this idea of like the, the organizational, the company where, uh, yes, there's all the people who are tapping on computers, but then there's the maverick entrepreneurial leader. Um, you know, he's right. different to everyone, and you know they're all in suits on on MacBooks. But I don't know, he's on a le- he's got a leather jacket, and he's riding a motorbike in, into into work. And actually, this is pl- this is pl- pulled into the church a little bit. Um, this idea of yes, the, the one leader who's different, but it's this leader who's separate. It's this leader who, in a sense, finds themselves by going to the frontier. Um, but I actually think again, to it, it's a misunderstanding of the return of nature. The the frontier. Uh, it is not this place where, you know, we discover that we're actually individualistic. Nature teaches us that we're connected. Like actually nature says you're part of a bigger system. You don't find yourself by being disconnected from everything. You actually, in a sense, sit in the mess and complexity of reality, find that you're less powerful than you think, and then turn to God in dependence. So in the scriptures, the wilderness is actually used in a sense, to teach us because it's really hard. Israel looks for manna um, and learns to be dependent upon God. So I think we need to move from a frontier mentality to actually a biblical wilderness mentality of leadership. Hmm. Yeah, just so many directions we can pursue. Um, One of the other topics you tackled that I'd like to touch on, because it's become such a hotbed, particularly over the last year and a half, is just critical theory. So it shows up as critical race theory. And people have, as soon as that word comes out, it's just boo to the polls, right? People are on this side or that side of the issue. Um, but but it's got a bigger framework. And I'd like you to help us understand that in a wider context. Talk about critical theory, critical race theory. I'd, I'd love your take on that. Well, it's pro- probably in the last 18 months, I've had more people asking me to comment on this than, than perhaps any sort of other cultural mm-hmm. phenomena. Um, most of that has been from North America. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, essentially, I could, part of the reason I, I did it for so long is like I had this intuitive sense that something else is going on here. So there's this whole sort of stream that you could place in Western culture. There's the enlightenment, but then there's in a sense this, so the alignment was, you know, here is, humanity, we've conquered nature, the individual through inquiry can, you know, uh, through scientific inquiry can come to this place where we create this world and we get rid of superstition from the past and we can power onto this wonderful new utopia through science and political science and all these things. But then there's this counter voice, which, you know, you, you look from the 18th century, you see this in, in, in German romanticism and German idealism where it's like, oh, hang on, you know, you look at the story of Mary Shelley Wright's Frankenstein, it's this counter story. It's actually this critical theory of what's actually happening in the broader industrial sort of culture. So there's always this counter voice. In some ways, what you could look at it, you could almost look at it as sort of the king. Um, if you look at it in this biblical sense, sort of like that first enlightenment story is trying to be the king role in scripture. And then that counter voice is trying to be the prophetic role, calling it to account. Um, okay. You know, and then critical theory is sort of really the iteration of that that begins in mid-century you know you could argue that you know, it happens um, particularly on the left as many sort of people marxists and so on looked at um, some of the ways that the soviet union had 
let them down really and become something they didn't think through Stalin. And then particularly in France after 96 state, when there isn't a revolution and Charles de Gaulle's still in power and you get sort of the critical theorists that we understand, Foucault and all these sort of people. So yeah, part of me is like, okay, so I could do this thing. What critical race theory is then is taking some of those ideas and applying it particularly um, through the context of race, particularly in the United States. But I just have had this thing the whole time where like something else is going on here. This is this is really, really bizarre. Um, and, you know, my sort of sense is what I find so interesting is that a lot of people on the right who are talking about critical theory and, and worried about critical theory and see it as this, this giant force that's rising in culture, many of them actually are talking in the language actually of critical theory. You know, some of the ideas of critical theory was, you know, look at Foucault had this idea of biopower. There was this idea that medicalization would be used as this great uh, form of social control and it would be a way that governments would actually use. So you've got this bizarre thing. You've got people who are pushing back on critical theory, but then the way that they're reacting to the pandemic is very much like Foucault, very much like a critical theorist, that there's this sense that actually these people are not in power. So the idea of the critical theorist was that you say, look at France, you've got, you know, de Gaulle's in power, you've got this sort of bureaucracy, you look across Europe, in places like Germany, there's this uh, generation which have actually sort of taken power and people like, you know, some of those people had dubious past um, with, you know, Nazi Germany and so on. So it was like, how do we speak truth to power from this position? But then we're in this bizarre position now where you've got like some of the world's top weapons producers, you know, the absolute center of the military industrial complex are now in their tweets and their inclusion policies using all the language of critical theory. And I'm looking at this going, how does this work? If Foucault or these people were looking at Nike or Apple using this language, like something is really bizarre happening here. And when I'm looking at people on the right who are decrying critical theory, but using the language of critical theory, I'm like, this is absolutely bizarre. And again, we talked about libertarianism. You've got people then on the left using the language of libertarianism, people who are social conservatives speaking like libertarians. It's like, hang on, this is bizarre. My read on all of this is uh, Ulrich Beck, the German sociologist, talked of zombie categories, which is the idea of these ideologies or institutions, which basically they've become detached from their original meaning, that we're in this sort Mm -hmm. of post-truth moment and these ideologies are being thrown around. They're almost disconnected from their original reality. And I feel like there's actually what really is going on in the world is something far bigger, far more interesting is that there's this deeper structural change. And many of these things that we're grabbing for critical theory, libertarianism, um, that we're actually trying to use these, these, these concepts from the 20th century to try and describe what's actually happening now. And you know, you hear now, someone will go, look, I just want to talk about racism that's existed in my city for this period and people, are, they shout them down, this critical theory, you're a Marxist. And they're like, hang on, I just want to talk about inequality that's happening in this area. You've got people who you know, are shouting down different positions. So they're using this extreme language to actually stop, about, stop and talk about the challenges that are before us, that yes, the Enlightenment didn't get rid of racism. Yes, the Enlightenment is struggling to deal with, you know, well, the modernity is struggling to deal with the challenges of nature. These things are still here. And I feel like we're rummaging through the cupboard to try and create solutions, you know, for, for them. Um, so, you know, that's my take. There's something bigger and far weirder going on. And my sense too is that these categories are, particularly in the US, there's been this thing of defining everything through this left and right container. It's not working anymore. That was a centralized concept. The world is now completely decentralizing and polarization is one step on the road to fragmentation. 
Okay. Well, I want to take that in a couple directions. First of all, that was a really helpful understanding of, of critical theory. But for those who might, you know, kind of be familiar with terms like woke or whatever, they just say, hey, you know, they react to it. What are what's an example if you can give one? And if you can't, we'll we'll move on. But like of a phrase that someone who may not even realize that they're using the language of critical theory is actually using it. Can you give an example of slogans or the kinds of things that that, that person might say without even being fully conscious that hey, I'm criticizing this, but behaving like one of them as well. Look, I, I, again, to like, like to, to be 100% honest, like I'm, I'm finding this so hard to even define anymore. So, so my idea is that there is no definition of, of woke anymore. So if I'm watching the sports news mm. here, Fox Sports, right? And there's a female fighter in Australia and she goes to her weigh-in. So they're like, here's this woman. She's, she's going to her weigh-in. And she goes to her weigh-in in her underwear. She's wearing this lacy underwear, right? And it's this big thing, fighter peers, underwear in her weigh-in, right? And they have these two people commenting. So they have one group saying, this is terrible. This is sexism. And she shouldn't be doing this. She's objectifying herself. And the woke answer is, we need to stop this kind of objectification. Then you have another person going, no, the woke answer is she's embracing her womanhood and this is actually pro-feminism two feminists both being woke or technically could be called woke saying two different things and so increasingly what you find is that there is no defined woke answer like in a sense woke is shorthand which we're just chucking all these things in so you know, is, i don't like what you're saying <laughs> essentially kind of it, what it's, it's become be- yeah it, it's it's become so like what what is conservative um you know yeah. like like are Canadians more conservative than people in the United States because they didn't actually reject the crown? Mm. <laughs> well, in the yeah, you're right. Like in the 18th and 19th century, that's more conservative. Whereas sure. people would go, "Oh no, Canada is more liberal." But are they? Like, so my sense is actually none of these categories are working anymore, and, and things are changing radically. Um, uh, you know, you look at Donald Trump. Like again, to um, I know this all. All this is controversial, you know, but like if you said to, to cultural conservatives in the 1980s, here's someone like Donald Trump, is is he, um, you know, like that he would be a champion of social conservatives. You look at Emmanuel Macron in France in 2019, he was being held up as the liberal centrist. His statements around immigration and he's now pushing back on woke and doesn't want American wokeism to come into France. Like, so this is all continually changing. Today's woke person, there are people in 2016 were like on the left who are now on the right. And I think what we're having now is a liquidity of positions. So in a sense, like for me, I I think that all these categories are absolutely busted because I think it's just... Yeah. To say here's woke. It's environment. It's it's pandemic responses. Racism. You know, it's it. I don't think it's working anymore. I'm not sure I studied philosophy to the degree you have, but in my dabbling of it over the years, you know, when I think about 19th century German or early 20th century German higher criticism, when I think about existentialism, right, from Nietzsche through to Foucault or Derrida, et cetera, et cetera. The thing that always got me is you see through things until there is nothing left, right? Like you deconstruct, but you're not actually constructing anything. And I almost feel like we're at kind of an apex of that moment where we've seen through so much and nothing is really standing anymore. I don't know whether that 
resonates or helps at all? Do you see that? Do you see it differently? Like, are we in that cultural moment, Mark? I think there's different things happening in different places. So I think particularly mm-hmm. US is because the US finds itself and, and I think probably the countries like Canada and Australia is sort of in, in that US influence. Yeah, we're in, the, we're in the orbit. We're in the um, orbit for sure of the US. You know, there's definitely, you know, I, I think about the sort of um, embly- emblematic moment of, you know, the withdrawal from Kabul. And it was really this sense, in particular, there's that one image of the plane taking off and people, you know, trying to grab onto it on the on the runway. You know, in, in a sense, that was an end of sort of, you know, end of an era moment. And this sense that I think there is deconstruction happening, particularly in the American world. To be honest, a lot of the deconstruction I even hear was stuff that people were talking about in the 90s here in Melbourne. Um, so in a sense, there's this deconstruction moment happening in the church, happening in the culture in the US. I think that's because of geopolitical realities. What does this all mean? Mm. Um, if you look at China, China, if you look at India, if you look at Turkey, if you even look, you know, what's happening in Africa, there's different places where like they're building a civilizational approach. Um, you look at Narendra Modi, his project in India is to actually build this, this culture, which is less a secular pluralist culture as it is, is here's this sort of Hindu culture linked to India. Xi Jinping's project of, uh, you know, China dream in China is to actually build China about something. One of the really interesting things that's happening in China is China actually, for many years, like had a, I think I had a 15-year study on why did um, the Soviet Union fail. China has now had this long study on how not to have all the problems of America going forward. So you've got these two things. You've got deconstructing culture and you've got these other cultures building a culture because they see that, in a sense, deconstructionism and nihilism is ultimately destroys a nation. Um, so I think we've got different... Different things, you know. You look at, say, even Central Central European places like Hungary and Poland are trying to build this. Okay, well, how do we do this differently to the nations in the Western uh, Europe part of the EU? So I think there's two modes. People hearing this um, would probably hear two modes going on. So I think yes, that's happening in some places. But then also, what you're seeing in the United States, in, in Canada, in Australia is well, how do we also? There's people building that civilizational project as well. Even regionalization. You know, you look at fascinating um, thing that's happened the last sort of two years with, with our two nations is the idea of federalism and, you know, um, provinces or states, you know, like I felt more like a Victorian being cut off from the rest of Australia during the pandemic um, than I felt like an Australian a lot in the last years. I never thought that would happen, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, so there's this sense where, yes, we're deconstructing, but we're building at the same time. Hmm. So the deconstruction has also happened at the church level. Uh, one, one of the things, because I've heard you say this, right? We look to international and national leaders. Municipal politics has never been more important in local politics uh, than it has over the last two years. I think we all get that. Whatever the county decides, the state, the province decides is sort of our reality. But there's also a sense in which power has shifted away from institutions. So Uh, One of the conversations I've been having lately with pastors is um, because people are voting, people have always voted with their feet. People have always voted with their wallet. So if I go to your church, Mark, to Red Church, but I don't really like the direction it's going in normal times, I can vote with my feet. I can vote with my wallet. I can withdraw and I can move on. It's a free country. But people have been doing that at a much faster pace. People have been doing that much more angrily than in the past. Talk to any pastor about his or her inbox over the last two years, and they'll probably get very emotional very quickly one way or the other. I'm wondering whether there is a sense in which the power a pastor thought 
he or she used to have has been eroded over the last few years. Any thoughts on that? Because people are deconstructing even the idea of church. So again, if, if you think about the American century, the period that would come out of it, it was about a great centralization of power. And history tends to be like a lung. If you think about the medieval period, there was a lot of power centralized in, in the church. And then basically what happened was we went into the Reformation where there was this decentralization. You think about the Gutenberg printing press, Europe right. went from the Holy Roman Empire into all these little you know, statelets and, and kingdoms. Um, and then really we then went back into another centralization of power, probably started in the 19th century, you know, industry um, and mm. United States. It was Britain, then it was the United States, the center of the world. And even the institutions around that, Hollywood, big sporting bodies, the NBA, you know, like this centralization of power. We're now breathing out again. And there's a great decentralization of power. The two main drivers of that are globalization and the internet. And so it's now about power then drains away from centers and is dispersed more evenly throughout a network. Now, there is a process where power then will begin to create new hubs. The internet starts and everyone's just got a little web page about, I don't know, the Simpsons or something. But then you see power starts again. We have, you know, Facebook or Google. We're actually at a moment of breathing out in the church. It's actually not just happening in the church. It's a, it's a dynamic that's happening in the whole culture. And so we've been told people trained in seminaries, people trained in the last season that the way to have influence is to, in a sense, study, find your way to the top of a powerful centralized institution. And there you can affect and have a leverage point to actually affect change as you see that, you know, God may be calling to happen in the world. Power is now draining away. There are people in the contemporary church scene now who have no leadership responsibility. They may have a blog or a Twitter page and have tremendous voice. Um, And podcasts reach more people than the Sunday sermon. Um, This is a whole new dynamic. So I think, yes, power is draining away. But again, too, like I think innovation rarely comes from the top of organizations. There's this moment where people are draining away. But partially, I think what that is exposing is this dynamic of individualism that was already happening within the culture where people had this understanding. I'm part of the universal church and, um, you know, have these beliefs. Um, but the, that what churches have not done well, I think, is then go, okay, what does it mean to actually belong to this particular church in a sense where, you know, our faith affirmation, but then that's got to break through into the real world. Okay, so what am I going to do about that? Who are the people I'm going to travel with? Yeah. Now, that's not just a digital. I think part of the mistake we've made is, oh, this is all becoming because of a digital reality with the pandemic. It was already happening. We already had a hyper-denominationalism. Oh, sorry. We already had a a hyper-Protestantism and a hyper-denominational of one. So we went from like, you know, say the Roman Catholic Church to, uh, you know, a few denominations to many denominations to now denominations of one. So someone's freestyling like, well, I like that. I don't like their thing on sexuality over there. I don't like them politically. You know, I'm just going to, Go over here, or I'm going to track, you know, it's the new reform things now, or I'm going to do micro churches or this. And they're just going through these different things. I think the pandemic simply just revealed what was already happening. Um, so it's less about digital as it is, is what does it really mean to belong to the people of God? And how do you express that? And you could have a church where, you know, like I feel like there's churches which have been more connected as an actual local church. I've seen here in Melbourne during the pandemic. Has it been perfect? No. When they can't meet, then some churches before when everyone could meet together because there were just people freestyling and sitting up the back of a church. Oh, I like that. Don't like that. There's a great new church over down the street. 
So I think partially the next season is rediscovering what is it to be the people of God? What does it actually mean to submit to a body? Um, and maybe part of this is like when we're realizing we're not in power, when we're realizing we're not these free autonomous atoms floating around the world in this playground that we can operate in, we're like, man, the world is an increasingly challenged place. I wonder whether that actual desire for some, not for everyone, for some to actually rediscover I think that New Testament biblical vision of the church is there. Hmm. How do you lead when everyone's freestyling and you feel your power slipping away? You have to let people go. There are people who are really, really wanted to do it and follow it. And it honestly could be the guy who's literally was in an AA meeting whose life's just born apart and is turning back to Jesus and looks messy. They may actually more want to lean in than the person who's been paid your church for 30 years and is a stalwart but is freestyling in their own life. So it's not like who are the best Christians here. It's who has a heart posture after God, who's willing to go on this journey with you. And I think the model going forward is, um, you know, we've often looked at quantitative. I think now it's qualitative, you know, qualitative Mm. discipleship versus quantitative discipleship. Yeah, so the depth of the people that you're leading rather than just how many people are in the room. Okay, I really want to focus in on the church and uh, in our time remaining today, Mark, and this has been so helpful. And I think getting a view at the macro really, really helps us get a view at the micro. Before we switch gears entirely, though, is there anything I've missed in the trends that you think we should talk about before we get into some of the micro? Oh, look, I can always do more trends. um, but. (laughs) <laughs> I, don't know yeah, I know well, I this think, is so good I, I think we've hit the main ones i i, I do okay. think that i mean pa- perhaps one too is i think as as culture like i feel like this is really important thing like leslie newbegin's one of my heroes and um you know i'm hoping for a leslie newbegin moment and i and i do feel as as things move more into greater deconstruction, greater destabilization, we become more possibly grabbing onto the stories that the culture is throwing at us. It's going through the cupboard, trying to grab this story, grab that story, but they're not the true biblical story. What Leslie Newbigin talked about is the, the gospel, the biblical story is the one true story. And that story is going to subvert all the other stories. So I think one thing I'd really encourage people is what I've noticed is if you're a bit left-leaning, People, people who are left-leaning at the moment are really concerned about what's happening on the right and they're focused on the right and they're concerned about what they see on the right. They're never going to become the right. The danger at moments like this is you go deeper and pick up further into the left story. People on the right who at this moment are traumatised, thinking, oh, my goodness, there's this rise of this totalitarian left who's going to have digital technology and it's going to be like the Chinese social credit system. They're not going to all of a sudden wake up tomorrow and go, well, I'm just going to join that they're actually going to go further onto the right. So I feel it's like this, the, the enemy, I, I remember being in the city as a kid and I was in Melbourne, I was walking in Chinatown and there were these two guys having a punch on, these two middle-aged men having a fight at the front of an, a store which sells alcohol. And I remember thinking my first thing was to look at them and go, who's the right one here? And I'm watching this fight for 20 seconds probably as this, or this crowd gathered, I realized like, they're both wrong. These are two guys who've had too much to drink and they're just punching each other. And I feel there's this moment where what we're doing is the church is looking at these battles in the culture and we're going, who do we back? And we're going to back the one mm. that we have more of a connection with. <laughs> the the, the new begin story is that 
if you are right wing at this moment, the biblical story will, yeah. So we can look at that. If you're a bit right wing conservative, you're going to go, here's how the biblical story deconstructs the left. That if you're on the left, you're like, here's the biblical story deconstructs the right. Yes. It also deconstructs the one that you're most familiar with. So there is this mm-hmm. actual moment of deconstruction, but it's a de. I, I feel like we're doing it wrong. At the moment, we're deconstructing key things about theology and orthodoxy. And we're now almost become suckers for political ideology. Let's flip it. Let's actually be people who are devoted to the core of the biblical story and the great vision that we see throughout scripture. And let's become increasingly skeptical and deconstructive of all the great ideologies that come across our path. We serve culture, but we refuse its idols. I think that's the way forward. Um, So that would be, I've noticed that people loved it. Um, you know, there's people who love it when I'm critiquing things on the left and progressivism in this cultural moment. When then I'm going, well, hang on, here's how the right's getting it wrong. People don't like that as much um, <laughs> and vice versa. So this thing is going to deconstruct stuff. So I think that would be my big thing, that politically we need to do how we're, politically and culturally, we need to, I think, reconnect with people like New Beginning to help us to do that well because I think that's going to continually trip us up if we're not careful going forward. Hmm. What are some mistakes the church has made in the last two years that you wish we hadn't made? I think that's one. I, I think yeah. the politicization. Yeah. Um, Going straight to the polls, like right or left. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's so fascinating. Like you look at church, what, what I find interesting about the last two years, and you mentioned, you know, like mm. pastors and, and men and women of God whose inboxes are filled, leaders with, you know, these emails, very few of them are actually about theology anymore. Oh, I know. It's, it's all political. Something happened here. And, and you know, I, I think that in, in some ways, again, too, this is like America as it's going through this moment of where is its place in, you know, and, and we're moving to a more distributed world in terms of power and influence. Mm. I think part of that is um, there is this religious element to the United States, which has been wonderful and served us. I think of so many things that you, your country and my country has been blessed from resources and leaders and, and content from the U.S. has been wonderful. But there's an element where that's gone into political religions. And it's not just the US. It was Europe as well. Um, you know, there's countries all over the world. Politics is like a religion. Brazil, the Brazilian election coming out. You know, there's all these things that are like politics has become so to the forefront. I think that's actually about secularization, that humans have mm-hmm. created this, this thing to worship. We want to believe in something. That normal period that we thought was normal, that actually wasn't. The myth of that was the Seinfeld world. Everything's about nothing. You just do your best life and, you know, go to the mall and it's all, you know, I read one book which said mm. life has been reduced to sex and shopping. That failed. Humans are built for bigger things. So part of the hunger we see around these political things is actually because the culture is desiring something bigger to live for. It's a God-shaped hole. And so mm. my, my, I feel like the church is messed up because at this moment when people are looking for a bigger story, we've just fallen into these reduced stories and these smaller stories. Mm. So, so I feel like there's a moment of humility and um, both the left and right have got it wrong and jumping into those stories, whether it's internationalism or nationalism, both are ideologies. Um, and yeah, I, I feel that, that that's a big mistake the church has made. Looking forward into a brand new year and this era, you know, the endemic church moving out of the pandemic, eventually we'll get there. I don't know when, nobody can really call that for sure globally. What are some tangible changes you're making at your church? Because you are, you're this amazing like guy who pulls all these ideas together, but you also lead a local church. So what's going to be different at Red Church? 
we we, we really have this sense and and you know, as a recording of this we're still reforming like we've had this huge period of not meeting we feel this real sense of making it about discipleship um there are so many things that we're looking at now like these bells and whistles like i realize now like so for example with where we're going and the different restrictions that we have going forward is we can't have as many volunteers and also volunteers have dropped off. We used to have a lot of volunteers on a Sunday. That's how we got people involved. You know, and I, I, I began to realize like, it, I just actually thought of this last week, was I creating a volunteer culture? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the volunteer culture more than I was creating a discipleship culture. Hmm. That someone could come and say they're on the roster to set up chairs or whatever, um, or be on sound. And we see that person coming and it's great. Oh, they, that, that role was fulfilled brilliant so that person was a backside on a seat in that service and they were serving up the back but how was their life changing with jesus Hmm. and and i feel like us going forward the thing that that i realized that i could not see and we you know we tried to reach people and bring people and do different things and so on the big project i i began to realize that for the last two years when i couldn't see everyone and i couldn't even see all my staff but i was in contact with my staff you know without the touch point of the congregation as widely as you were is that I had to lead the staff into renewal. And so I felt like <clears throat> there has been a renewal in our staff in their spiritual life. Like I had a lot of millennial staff who who I think like the last two years, I think last time we spoke um, perhaps earlier in the pandemic, and there's this moment where I was looking at my millennial leaders and I thought, this is going to be the making of you. Like I think two years on, it has been the making of many of them. I think the big thing for me too was like, yeah, people people know me, I write books. And I realized that the model of in a in a complicated uh, complicated to complex world is in the complicated world you get the one leader that's known. People want to hear their sermons. They want to hear their thoughts. Who's the star at the top of the church? If you get a star at the top of your church organization, people are going to come. I think we've seen in the last eighteen months more how stars are falling. <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if an entire organization is based on star power, there's a problem. And I thought one day this this phrase came into my head: Let, Let's not build a star, or let's not have the start let's create a galaxy you know and and just in the pandemic you know i've been watching digital church and seeing other people on my team preach and i think the proudest moment is services that i'm not i'm not a part of where there's there's people on my team who millennials and seeing them develop their preaching skills actually them leading other people to preach and so i feel the way going forward is you know i'm here for a finite time i've done my, my job you know on earth for a finite time i'm weak i'm i'm at the behest of nature, I'm mortal. Um, there's a point where, you know, I'm going to exit stage left and I've done my job well when people who are better than me do my job better than I ever could and I've played a part. And I feel like we need to move that. I think that the centralised age was the age of the celebrity. We're now moving to the age from the star to the galaxy. So that's a big focus for us. How do we develop leaders how do we release people into their gifting? How do we actually create a more resilient church? Because it's not just based on one person, but it's stronger because it's based on many. And that's true from someone who's just coming to the church. You know, we thought the best thing you want someone to go is not like, hey, come to this church. Is That's great. Red's great. Instead, at someone's workplace, what's different about Fred or Mary? And that's mm-hmm. actually an overflow of what's happening at Red. I, I want what they've got. Right. Um. What is your take on digital versus physical or the hybrid church moving forward? How do you see that morphing in a healthy direction? And what are some of the pitfalls to be careful of? 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think we've seen a, a real journey going forward of, um, you know, early on, and particularly now as we're thinking about coming back. So I do I do think the future is going to be hybrid. I think there is. We mm-hmm. we had a members meeting last night. So as of recording this, we can't meet in numbers. Um, probably when this comes out, we we will be able to. Um, like uh, there are meetings where it's like it's just a lot easier for people to get to certain things who are. Work, come home from work, you know, who then have to get in the car and come back. So there's there's fantastic advantages. Um, I think what we've seen is that there's also the tangible of being in a room together. I did not realise, like, again, to Australia, like, in the last two years, we've hardly met. And I did not realise how what, those few moments we could, there was just tangible things like, I remember just being in the room, thought, I can't replicate this online. But then we've seen the power of online. We've seen people join mm-hmm. us who would never have joined us if they did not. There was people who are now part of our church, key people who joined us during the pandemic online. Um, so I think it's going to be this tension. I think we can't be over, like, I think before we were so over-reliant on Sunday services and they almost were like the idea that we wouldn't have them. How would we operate? I feel like that's also with digital now. Like, like there's a lot I'm reliant on now. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, uh so I think it's it's holding both, realizing they're simply tools, they're tactics, strategies, the big thing. Um, I do think like what happens in the future if the internet becomes more destabilized. So we can't completely go to a, just as we couldn't meet physically, we may not be able to do stuff. So I think this is a journey we're going to learn. I think we're going to come uh, uh, to a point where we understand the nuances. Um, uh, and I think it hasn't happened like we thought. I think the big thing that people predict is when the pandemic hit, oh, everyone's just going to become a consumer Christian. It's too hard to go to church. They're going to sit and watch in their track pants with, a, I don't know, a bowl of popcorn or something. Um, what I found was you'd hear from people who like three years early were like, oh, it's really hard to get to church. And then about six to nine months in the pandemic, like it's really hard to watch the service. I thought, man, there's something, there's something here like, I cannot make this any more easy to you. you just turn on your smart TV, boom, me there. So I think there's something about human nature and commitment. Um, so I think- That's I a think, good articulation. Hard mm-hmm. to, you know, I have heard that. Hard to make it to church. It's like, it's just hard to watch online. It's like, okay, (laughs) what's going on here, guys? Yes. Uh, uh, Is there a question you don't hear leaders asking that you think every leader should be asking? Hmm. I would say the environment's changing. We're not in control of the environment. How can this new environment, this changing environment, how can God actually do something in this moment that he couldn't have done before? Hmm. So instead of resenting, lamenting, what are the opportunities that, that are possible here? And I remember hearing this articulation um, in this book um, where it said, like, it was, it was a guy from Europe who was talking to a, a Chinese professor. And the Chinese professor said to him, Westerners think about strategy. They're like, here's where I want to go. There's the horizon. I'm going to bang towards it. And then if things come in my path, I'm just going to smash through them. Where he said, actually... His way of looking at things was how is the environment changing and then how do I react to it in order to um, benefit my goals? And, and, and I, I've thought a lot about that in the sense that in this disrupted world, what can God do that was like harder in the last season? Like people, I, I found it was so hard doing ministry in Melbourne because people have such a wonderful life. I've now been in this environment where people have not had a wonderful life. Melbourne had too many options. The last season they haven't had options. So how do I preach differently? How do I see the opportunities in that? So I feel like the question is, we can't control the environment. How do we see that God can do things that that perhaps in us that we that weren't happening in the last season? 
Is there a question or two that we should just stop asking? Like just never say it again. Anything that you've heard too much of that you're like, yeah, just don't do this. I think it's the go back thing. And you hear it in different ways. Like when will things return to normal? You're in that sense from a sort of practical, pragmatic sense. But then also even culturally, like people sort of, you know, get back to these Christian values or this period in history. And looking at church history, like, yeah, I, I love the Christian. Yeah, so I'm not saying let's deconstruct and change that. But like what period? When? Do you know what I mean? Like when was the golden period? The, the, the golden period is when the kingdom of God comes in fullness on earth. That's like... It, the golden period is forward. It's, it's not backwards. And I feel there's this sense of like the culture's changing. It's not what it was. I get red history. Like when, what's the normal period you want? The 1970s with hyperinflation and, and chaos, the 60s. We go back to World War II. Yeah. You want the 19th century, 1800. You know, what, what do you want? The dark age is like, like every history have challenges. And I think this idea that somewhere in the past it was easier. That normal, not normal period, yeah, it was comfortable. But it, it was not fun to do evangelism and to do church in a period where everyone just thought that they didn't need God. Mm. It was, it probably was more comfortable for us. So I don't want to go back like, like God, what's God going to do in the future? So I think we, we can't go back. Yeah. Anything else you want to share Mark or a word you want to leave with leaders listening today? My sense is as I've spoken to leaders in the last, um, two years that there's this discernment going on in a lot of leaders. And, and the, the raw question is, do I want to keep going? Um, there's the great resignation happening in society. And I think there's a great resignation happening in, in ministry. Um, and you know, I think there's a lot of people who are perhaps saying, oh, I didn't sign up for this. Um, uh, there's a lot of people who, you know, I've had a lot of messages of people like I can handle the church stuff, but it's family, it's, it's friends, you know, um, political polarization, um, leading in a pandemic, looking forward, not being able to predict. You know, my encouragement is that as, as I've read church history, when I've read the book Reappearing Church, it's like, how does God renew the church? And there's so often this process that I discovered as, as I read that often there's this leader who became isolated. They, they went through this moment of real loneliness. And often there was there was betrayal, there was frustration, there was there was dissent, there was conflict with friends. But through that process, you know, they turned back to God. You know, I, again, you know, you think about David um, coming into the presence of Saul to play him music and then Saul throwing spears at him. What must have felt like for the king of Israel, anointed by God, who is, you know, the, he would have heard the stories, is, is Saul amongst the prophets, when he was, this, this is a guy who's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's chucking spears at you. That, that is a very discouraging moment. Yet what you see is David then turns um, and that enables and opens up in him an intimacy with with the Father that we read in the Psalms, which has been the, the prayer book of the church for centuries. Jesus prayed those Psalms. And, you know, I think there's a moment here, you know, is it going to be comfortable? No. Is it going to be easy? No. Is there going to be points where you're going to be absolutely pushed to your limit 100%? But my sense is I, I, I feel in the world that there is this cohort of leaders who may feel like they have no power or draining power or they're increasingly marginal. But there's marginal places with people who have lost the sense of power. That's the exact place that renewal emerges from when people turn to God. So like my mm -hmm. sense is, yet yeah, discern it. You've got to say, I'm going to be in this because it's not going to be easy. But I have this real sense that if I look at, yeah, the world's changing, when the world is changing, when the world's globalizing, when the political ideologies are falling, when Christian leaders feel like, 
they're isolated. When everyone's writing off the church, get ready because that's the exact moment that renewal begins and things turn around and it starts in the life of leaders. So I can't promise you it's going to be easy, but I can promise you if you keep pushing into God, be dependent on him, that great things can happen. You may not become great yourself, <laughs> but you can be used in God's great mission in the world. So that, that would be my encouragement, you know, not to give up at this moment, trust in God. He's, we're being re-educated by reality, but that's exactly where we meet God's reality. Mark, this has been so refreshing, enlightening, helpful, and in the end, encouraging. Um, it really has been. I can't thank you enough. Uh, where can people find you online these days? Uh, tell us more. Yeah, you can, you can find me on, on um, Instagram or, or Twitter, but you can go to marksayers.co, um, and that has the links um, from there to find those things. Oh, I also rebuild this podcast. Oh yeah. Rebuilders podcast. Definitely. Definitely. You're going to keep going on that one. Yes. Fantastic. That's great. Mark until next time. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, I love conversations like that and I feel like they could go on for a long time. So how about we do a series? Okay. We will. That's a great idea. There I am talking to myself. Uh, next episode, I sit down with Nona Jones from Meta Facebook, right? As we know her and uh, DJ Soto DJ is the founder of VR Church, I think the first church in the metaverse, uh, or at least in virtual reality. And then Nona Jones is has worked at uh, Meta or Facebook for a number of years. And we get into a primer of the metaverse Web 3, how it will be different from Web 2 and Web 1, VR Church, NFTs, DAOs, blockchain, and all that stuff that really is going to be part of everyday life before we know it. Uh, it's a little mind-bending. I know a lot of you have been researching this on your own as well, so hopefully we can just up the dialogue a bit. Here's an excerpt. What it represents is institutions becoming less relevant, and that's going to affect the church as well. Uh, how it will, that's yet to be seen, but there is that move in this particular type of technology, and it's not just the technology, it's also the attitude behind it, um, where we're not going to need banks. Um, you know, we are going to be the banks and, you know, with Bitcoin and all of those things. And so what does the decentralized church look like? But yes, it's going to be very disruptive. I don't, I think it's going to be more disruptive than the previous web and the previous paradigms. And you're right. Church leaders really need to chew on this because I think a radical tactical shift is coming uh, for the church and for church leaders. And today's episode is brought to you by World Vision. Um, they are really concerned for you and so am I. So download their free leadership assessment guide today at worldvision.org slash carry podcast. That's worldvision.org slash C-A-R-E-Y podcast. And then don't miss the XP Summit in Manchester, New Hampshire, May 24th and 25th. I've been at CDF Capital Events, spoken there. They're amazing. You can register by going to xpsummit.org. Also coming up in the future, we've got Craig and Bobby as part of this series. By that, I mean Craig Rochelle and Bobby Grunwald. I'm going to talk to them about the future of the church. Craig's comment two years ago to me that they're 100% digital and 100% virtual online. Totally resonated. We're going to talk about that. Vance Roosh is going to be on about crypto and the future of donations and even money. Yep, believe it or not, how we think about money is changing. And then, well... <laughs> We got some other really fascinating guests. If you subscribe, you get that automatically. And we do all kinds of interesting things over at my website too. We have over 85,000 leaders who subscribe to an almost daily email. If you would like to do that, you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash email. And then, um, well, the future trends post for 2022 is out. 
And I do some regular writing over there. And uh, that's where the universe, uh, at least my little tiny slice of it, all comes together. And you can find the home for this show as well. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. This is a privilege to do this with you. I'm grateful for you. And uh, I want you to know, I don't, I don't say this very often, but I pray for you. Um, every week I have this little prayer rotation and I remember podcast listeners. So uh, really grateful for you. Whatever you're doing, keep going. We're in this together. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.